0: The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show.
1: Welcome to The Dan Proft Show. Thank you for joining us on this edition, and boy, oh boy, I sure wouldn't have wanted to be the one, that is to say, to have to have had informed... Stacey Abrams of Joe Biden's selection. That must have been a difficult conversation. Uh, We'll uh, be talking to Victor Davis Hanson uh, coming up uh, after the break. We'll also talk a little later in the show to Noah Rothman from Commentary Magazine about uh, Creepshow Joe's selection of Reparation H to be his running mate. Safe choice, smart choice, bad choice. Uh, President Trump seemed pretty pleased with it at his Tuesday COVID-19 news briefing where he was asked about it and uh, invade thusly.
0: She's very big into raising taxes. She wants to slash funds for our military at a level that nobody can even believe. She uh, is against fracking. Fracking is, she's against petroleum products. I mean, how do you do that and go into Pennsylvania or Ohio or Oklahoma or the great state of Texas? She's against... Uh, fracking. Fracking's a big deal. Uh, she's in favor of socialized medicine, where you're going to lose your doctors, you're going to lose your plans. She wants to take uh, your health care plans away from 180 million Americans, 180 million Americans that are very happy with their health insurance, and she wants to take that away. So she was my number one pick,
1: <laughs> she's my number one pick. I appreciate it. Sure. Uh, she fits in perfectly. Uh, and the tag that the Trump campaign put on her right away was that she's a phony because of so many inconsistencies. Ari Fleischer, former uh, White House press secretary for George W. Bush, of course, uh, he had a pretty good uh, Twitter thread on this. Harris is a fake empty suit. She accused Biden of being a segregationist, but then agrees to run with him. Either she faked her allegation against Biden or she's faking now. She faked her position in favor of Medicare for all until it became unpopular. Then she opposed it. She produced a fake edited video about what Brett Kavanaugh said about birth control. She got caught faking Brett's statements. She once acted tough on crime, but that was too was fake during her race for the presidency. She agreed with a speaker who said the police, quote, serve the rich and then they just harass and take up space in poor communities, unquote. She even faked confusing Okay, excuse me. She even faked confessing to smoking pot in college while listening to Snoop and Tupac, neither of whom were were known by the public until she was well out of college. She's a typical left wing. Say anything. Do anything. Democrat Marxist. But okay, Biden Harris is a weakness that will acquiesce the far left of the D party. There is nothing moderate about either. Right. They don't need to acquiesce. They're part of it. That's mild disagreement with Ari Fleischer. But otherwise, I think he's got a handle on it and the trump campaign was at the ready for this selection they uh, pumped a 30 second spot out right away
0: kamala harris ran for president by rushing to the radical left embracing bernie's plan for socialized medicine calling for trillions in new taxes attacking joe biden for racist policies voters rejected harris they smartly spotted a phony but not joe biden he's not that smart Biden calls himself a transition candidate. He is handing over the reins to Kamala while they jointly embrace the radical left. Slow Joe and phony Kamala. Perfect together. Wrong for America.
1: Yeah, look, I think the uh, uh, the idea that uh, Joe was not going to be running the show and that uh, he will be uh, beholden to a cipher for the radical left. I think that works. I think it's true. Number one, which is a large measure why it works. And I think it's a good pop on Kamala, too, is that she's really couching her positions and she's changing them as the the opinion polls drive her to do so based on a naked pursuit of power. And once obtained, that will be turned over to do the bidding of the left. Joel Pollack from Breitbart, I think, had a good handle on a Biden presidency. It will be Obama staffers implementing Bernie Sanders policies. Right. Don't forget where Kamala has come down on so many issues, even before she was running for the presidency. Although I guess one could argue as soon as she became a senator from California, she was running for president. I'll give you an example. This is from less than six months into the Trump administration back in 2017. Her back and forth with then DHS, DHS secretary, General John Kelly. This is before he became Trump's chief of staff and us before he left. But listen to this exchange on a discussion of sanctuary city and state designations and the issue of funding those cities and states. And um, the argument, keep in mind the argument that's made as one of the attributes of Kamala of reparation age, which is she is going to be able to take the case for the Biden team to the American public as to why no, uh, why you should be a no on Trump, Pence. She's going to be able to dissect, use her lawyerly talents to eviscerate Trump and Pence. We haven't seen much of that. And when she does try, this is how it sounds.
2: imagine, sir, if you will, uh, that you were a local law enforcement leader presented with a choice of either. Uh, complying with federal law that means that you may expose your department and your jurisdiction to civil liability or forfeiting DHS funds that are designed and intended to help you fight terrorism at a local level. Wouldn't you agree that puts those law enforcement leaders in a – it's almost a Hobson choice, Hobsian choice?
0: Well, Senator – How
2: are they supposed to choose?
0: Had you not cut me off – I would have said the same thing you just said. Probably not as eloquently, but I'd have said the same thing you said. I appreciate the fix they're in. I appreciate that they get their legal advice from, uh, from, the, from the state locals. Uh, and locals. Uh, and below the radar, we work with uh, every police and sheriff department in this country to the degree that they can and are comfortable with. We talk to them about whatever they're comfortable with, whatever they think they can do, within the interpretation. Uh, of their local um, attorneys general, as an example, are local uh, lawyers. So when Some they're are they, where, when they're, you know they're instructed,
2: they once excuse Senator? me, I, I'm asking the questions. But I'm trying to answer the question. When they are, when they tell you, <laughs> as I know, <laughs> local police officers, uh, police chiefs are being told that it would expose their municipality to civil liability if they comply with the detainer request. Are you telling them that you will not withhold? The DHS federal funding that they rely on.
0: Okay, before I start to answer, will you let me finish?
1: If it's responsive to the question, of course. Oh, of course. Uh-huh. Uh huh. How does that come off to you? And remember, this isn't even getting into her the actual position she's taken. Just, just personality-wise, just attitudinally. I mean, General John Kelly, whether you liked him as Trump's chief of staff or not, is a patriot who uh, has served our country heroically. Who whose son died in service to our country. You can't show him the respect to allow him as the Homeland Security Secretary to answer questions about uh, sanctuary city and state policies. You just have to, have to try to jackpot uh, people, uh, however inartfully. So she's going to bring those skills to bear against Mike Pence. She comes across in a VP debate like that with Pence, and I think it'll be very difficult for her to resist the temptation Then Mike Pence, Mr. Vanilla, right, boring but steady, reasonable, calm, uh, resistant to the personal attack. You know, as we've seen, the personality contrast between Trump and Pence couldn't be more stark. Uh, But they're on the same team. The personality contrast between Pence and Harris, I think, will be even more stark. And it will not redound to the benefit of Harris. It'd be very interesting to see that. Um, One other thing, too, just because of this reaction from Ted Rall, who's a political cartoonist, but also a Bernie bro. You know, he's a he's a leftist. He writes in The Wall Street Journal by choosing Senator Kamala Harris as his running mate. Joe Biden is sending a message to the progressive left base of the Democrat Party. Drop dead. It's interesting. You say, well, that's the point. Uh, you're you're picking Harris because you're going after the swing voters in the swing states. Uh huh. OK, here's the thing. Uh, Biden has an enthusiasm gap and in this hyper uh, hyper politicized and particularly divisive political culture. These are base plus elections. Yes, you need to be able to reach beyond your base, but you can't come to the table with anything less than a full accounting of your base. And if she does push some of those Bernie voters away the way that Hillary Clinton did, she doesn't. If, if, if Biden and Harris don't get the kind of turnout they need from all the coalition partners, all the Marxist coalition partners, that's a big problem. It's so big a problem that they can't win. There is a little bit of, a little bit more of good news, and that's that uh, Kamala Harris's nomination keeps uh, Maya Rudolph employed. The font is back, baby. The font is
2: back, baby. America's fun aunt. I'm also America's cool aunt. The you know what.
0: Show at DanProfShow.com.
1: Welcome back to the show. New York Times headline. News story. Retail chains abandon Manhattan. It's unsustainable. Some national chains, both retail and restaurants, are closing outlets in New York City, which are struggling more than their branches elsewhere. Indeed. For years, Bryant Park and Grill Cafe in Midtown Manhattan has been one of the country's top-grossing restaurants. The star property in Arc Restaurant's portfolio of 20 restaurants across the United States. But what propelled it to the top has vanished. The tourists are gone, the office towers surrounding it are largely empty, and the restaurant's 1,000-seat dining room is closed. Instead, dinner is cooked and served on its patio, and the scaled-down restaurant brings in about $12,000 a day. That's an 85% plunge in revenue. According to the restaurant CEO in the heart of Manhattan, national chains, including J.C. JCPenney, Kate Spade, Subway and others have shuttered branches for good. Many other large brands like Victoria's Secret of the Gap have kept their high profile locations closed in Manhattan while reopening in other states. And in point of fact, if you read a little bit further into the story of Arc restaurants, five Manhattan restaurants. Only two have reopened while its properties in Florida have expanded outdoor seating with tents and tables into their parking lots, serving almost as many guests as they had indoors. Oh, and of course, you can't have a New York Times story without pushing the narrative while its properties in Florida, where the virus is far worse, writes the New York Times, have extended outdoor seating and so forth where the virus is far worse. Uh, Let's shall we go to the death count? But uh, I digress. You know, even the New York Times. Is unintentionally aiding the narrative they're trying to otherwise tamp down that the combination of economic lockdown policies plus the tolerance of lawlessness on the streets of major cities is destroying those cities economically and in every culturally and in every other way. Let's not forget, New York City is up more than 30% in shootings and murders this year. In New York City, Chicago, Kansas City, Seattle, Portland, these are the cities that are driving the 25 percent increase in murders year over year in America. And uh, so as we continue our assessment of the choice that Joe Biden made, or maybe it was Trump making it and Joe Biden just uh, acquiesced, I don't know. One could make the argument. Kamala Harris recently on The View with Meghan McCain on whether or not the former California attorney general supports defunding the police.
2: Are you for defunding the police? How are you defining defund the police? Well, I'm not for anything remotely for that. So I would ask the protesters the same thing. But I assume it's, I assume, and again, this is something that is new to me. I assume it's removing police. And as um, Congresswoman Ilhan Omar said, bringing in a whole new way of of governing and a law and order into into a community. And my understanding, again, this is something that has just come into my understanding recently, is that you, you would not have police officers like this. Minneapolis city councilwoman said that I would be a place of privilege if someone broke into my home and I wanted to call the police. So again, we need to reimagine how we are achieving public safety in America. And to have cities where one third of their entire budget is going to policing, but yet there is a dire need in those same cities for mental health resources, for for resources going into public schools, resources going into job training and, and, and job creation. Come on. We have to be honest about this, that there is actually not a consensus around this, because if there were, we would actually see smarter distribution of resources in in our in our country.
1: hmm. So uh, reimagining, rethinking, redistribu- redistribution of uh, public safety resources, public health resources, that's all so much lawyerly lingo for openness to defunding the police. What does that mean? It means cutting the funding for police, shrinking the department, uh, laying off personnel, replacing them with social workers. All the things you're seeing actually happen in places like Seattle, Minneapolis. There's no confusion here. There's just artifice. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by our friend Victor Davis Hanson, Martin and Illy Anderson, senior fellow at the Hoover Institution and author most recently of The Case for Trump. VDH, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. You've written about uh, the thin veneer of uh, civilization uh, at a recent piece, at least that I read at uh, National Review. And it seems to me uh, the New York Times is covering uh, is providing that thin veneer and it's it's paper thin. And um, it's uh, being uh, pierced by the rhetoric of uh, one Joe Biden vice presidential nominee, Kamala Harris.
3: Yeah, I don't think we need to take them very seriously in their latest incarnation. Joe Biden would have never, I mean, he wasn't for this. He's just writing what he feels from his basement with his poor, poorly receptive antenna that he thinks now he's got to go defund the police hard left because what he watches on TV and what his handlers tell him. And Kamala Harris has been all over the map. Houston, as a Californian, I remember reading about her putting parents in jail for Maybe that was good or not, but she she came to prominence as a minority, hardcore law and order. Not that she really followed her rhetoric with action, but that's what she, what she posed as. And what she's saying now is that basically she's making a calculated gamble that the inner city um, African-American vote, and to a lesser extent the Latino vote, will be for defunding the police because of shooting. I don't think that's true. I don't know if that issue is going to lose her support, but it could lose her three or four or five points that ticket if they go through with it. But more importantly, they think the swing voters in these purple states support that position, and that's why they're mouthing it. Either that or they're captive to their base. But when you look at the polls of both African-Americans and independents and swing, that's not an issue that resonates well for them. So it's it's hard to know whether they're just obtuse or whether they have some internal polling but it's not a winning issue to defund the police and
1: well and i don't,
3: and joe, it, joe biden doesn't know where he is and she doesn't know who she is at any given cycle in the election <laughs> yeah.
1: well so yeah so this was my question right is is since kamala harris has long ago abandoned thoughtfulness restraint even handedness in pursuit of political power then why wouldn't she just uh, reintroduce herself as uh, the prosecutor kamala harris the law and order the person who did prosecute uh, criminals, who did enforce the law. And uh, so then they can ham and egg it because, you know, they've got the lawless anarchist Jacobin crowd. They need uh, those swing voters in the suburbs who actually do believe in law and order, even though I agree with you, minorities in urban centers do as well.
3: Yeah, that would be the logical thing, but I don't think they're quite logical. I think that she feels that Joe Biden, for a variety of reasons, both his own mistakes and promising the gender and perhaps even the race beforehand of the VP selection, she believes that she's wedded to that base and she wants to shed any suggestion or inference that she's a moderate, quote-unquote, African-American. She really wants to get to the base. And so to do that, she did that in the primary, but what what I don't understand is when she went hard left and reputed, rebuked all of her entire position, she ended up with 2% of the vote. And I think that was largely because the more people saw her, the more they didn't like her because she has an off-putting demeanor. She's arrogant. She has a weird kind of Hillary Clinton cackle that she breaks into. She's not a very uh, winning personality. And the weird th- dynamic that's setting up, she she was the one person, and then later Elizabeth Warren, that went after Biden in really personal and, and racial terms. And now Biden is, I think he's cognitively impaired. I don't think he'd be able to finish out two years, and I think that if she were to be vice president, if he were to win, she would be a catalyst for getting him out of it, and I think he must know that. She'd be almost like a bird of prey circling around him in the Oval Office.
1: When uh, we come back, I want to pick up uh, right there on Kamala Harris. Uh, you mentioned the the race issue that she played against Joe Biden during the primary campaign. Also, the Me Too issue that she played against him that I guess is no longer a serious matter for her either. More with Victor Davis Hanson right after this.
0: Proft show on the Salem Radio Network.
1: Welcome back to the show. We're talking to Victor Davis Hanson. He is the Martin and Illy Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, author most recently of The Case for Trump. And we were talking about sort of the intersection of Joe Biden's selection for vice president. That would be one Kamala Harris. With policing, particularly in major urban centers, but also this uh, you remember from the Kavanaugh hearings, her pontification on behalf of Christine Blasey Ford when she said this.
2: There was a process by which Christine Blasey Ford, who literally had nothing to gain by coming forward, Rachel, nothing to gain. She had a perfect life. And she looked at the fact that this guy was being nominated and said, the American people have a right to know what I know. And she was treated like a criminal.
1: Uh, Victor Davis Hansen, uh, I suppose you could say <laughs> the same thing about Tara Reid at present, couldn't you? You sure could. And Christine Blasey Ford did
3: not have a perfect life. She had a history of depression and she was an unhappy person. And when she finished that entire thing, she became court of the heartthrob of the left. She did much better after the hearing than she did before. She became kind of a cultural icon to the left. That's just a preposterous what Paris said. Everywhere she goes, she alienates people. And the idea that she may be president after having an agenda and a candidacy that had no resonance at all in the Democratic primary is kind of scary. But that's the way the system works. And what we're talking about, we're just beating around the bush. What we're talking about, and you know better than I do, it's about 10 states and that a support supposedly swing voter because the, the rural vote in Michigan and Wisconsin, the small town vote in Pennsylvania, that will match the inner city vote in Pittsburgh or Milwaukee or Detroit, the, the thing will tip it one way or the other are these suburbs. And we don't know quite what they're thinking. We know that they are turned off by some of Trump's tweets and personality, but they're more in, aligned with his issues than they are with the Democrat. How that's going to work out will be dependent on the news cycle in the next 80 days.
1: Well, and, and again, Kamala Harris on this issue, this Me Too issue, the sexual harassment allegations against Joe Biden, generally speaking uh, before even Tara Reid uh, came forward, the she said, I believe the accusers, like it was the mantra of Hillary Clinton and, and other radical feminists. I believe the accusers without uh, without question. And now now what are we supposed to believe? She just, well, that was the primary. You know, you, you know, these rape allegations, these accusations of sex harassment. Sometimes they're important. Sometimes they're less important. You know, they, they fall. They go up and down the priority matrix. It's just so there's the hypocrisy piece of it. And this is perhaps one of the reasons why she came off. As badly as she did, why she underperformed based on the expectations coming in in terms of what she looked like on paper versus what she uh, looked like in practice, because as the Trump campaign hit right out of the gate, she's a phony. I mean, it's just naked pursuit of power. But the question is, do people have sort of that feeling about politicians generally? So it's sort of a wash that she's a phony like so many uh, other people are phonies.
3: I think that's a good point. I think when he made that decision, and I don't think he made it as hammer's did, they put on the left side of the deficit call and the fact that she's from California, that she brings no Electoral College heft to the ticket at all. She turns off people. And she's a phony. The terror Reid thing was ridiculous because by all rules of leftist uh, jurisprudence, she should be believed because there's no statute of limitations in their way of thinking, and everybody has to be believed, but she just threw that out, as she pointed out, but on the other side, they thought, you know what, when we mentioned Karen Bass or we talked about Faithy Abram, these people, these minor figures have all sorts of unvetted histories and they're not good as part of the BLM affiliation or Black Caucus. They're left wing and we don't know anything about them. So they thought, you know, this at least all the dirt came out of her. And, and that's, I think, why they picked her. And Susan Rice was the only viable alternative. She's even more polarized and she's never been elected anything. So I think that was the, the idea.
1: There, there's something else, though, too, even if you, you know, get away with the hypocrisy of it you know there there's issue positions that really haven't been vetted uh and one of them is that she was at least initially uh, a proponent of reparations i, I mean i oh, just she still is i think she still is right and so she so, so that, yeah, yeah how, how do you walk away from that and and you want to tell me how reparations is going to play with the white working class that scranton joe biden is supposed to pull back into democrat ranks in pennsylvania and michigan and wisconsin i mean come on yeah yeah
4: but look what he's
3: done All of those issues that we heard from January to March, reparations, Medicare for everybody, health care for illegal aliens, New Green Deal, 70% tax rate, wealth tax, that was all rejected by the voters, first by the resurrection of Joe Biden and then the call for Michael Bloomberg to come in. So those hard left candidates had no resonance with their own party. And yet Joe Biden feels that to get the African-American vote and to get the Antifa sympathetic vote He's got to embrace those issues. And how does he square that circle? He stays in the basement. I haven't heard a word of what he said. you Once in a while, he'll say something that we need more religious education for Muslims or something. But he doesn't say anything. And, And the only way Trump is going to get him out of there and on there, when he gets out of the basement, he's actually speaking off the cuff if that happens at all. Because we've never seen a candidacy like this in the history of American politics. If he were to do that, you know what he's going to do.
1: He is Victor Davis Hanson, the Martin Ily Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, author most recently of The Case for Trump, VDH. Thanks, as always, for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Okay. Thank
0: Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and The Dan Proft Show.
1: Welcome back to the show. I want to uh, provide anatomy of a regime that's run on propaganda. And uh, there are few better examples in the Western world than the city of Chicago. Again, against the backdrop, as we've talked about the last couple days, talk about at least one more day here because I think it's useful. It's instructive how uh, Marxist politicians are acting in all of these big cities that are beset by lawlessness. Uh, lawlessness that's been encouraged effectively regardless of the rhetoric and therein lies the propaganda but uh, Kim Fox, Cook County State's attorney, she of Juicy Smollett infamy she, a friend of Kamala Harris Kamala Harris endorsed Kim Fox in the recently concluded Dem Socialist primary in Illinois back in March primary contest that she faced. Yeah, that Kamala Harris I'm referring to And I referred to earlier as describing the Smollett case as an attempted modern day lynching. Uh huh. Uh, Would you like to revise and extend your remarks, Senator? Here's what Kim Fox said in the wake of the ransacking of downtown Chicago on Monday morning. Here was from her press conference. First, you get the care bear emoting for law abiding residents
5: of our neighborhoods that i'm sure i am like many people are heartbroken angry confused as to how we find ourselves here
1: right heartbroken yeah she feels just like you do you are her she is you uh then on uh, the actual pertinent part her job as the lead prosecutor in Cook County, the second most populous county in the country.
5: We cannot talk about all hands on deck and seek simple solutions to complex problems. We must continue to work together. The mothers who are mourning the losses of their children, the people who are afraid to go out into the stores and into the streets, the people who are unable to come downtown today to go to work, are looking for answers, not blame. We have been working diligently since COVID.
1: You see in a propaganda regime, accountability is dismissed as finger pointing. And that's what Kim Fox was doing. They're looking for solutions. Everybody's confused and heartbroken. Uh, She works with law enforcement.
5: We have been a partner to law enforcement throughout the last several months particularly in these challenging times.
1: It's funny. That's not what the FOP president in Chicago says. It's not what the rank and file in both her office as well as the Chicago Police Department know to be true. Propaganda regime. What was uh, Jason Whitlock uh, uh, motif from his most recent column that I referenced on yesterday's show? Uh, Truth is the enemy of politics or politics is the enemy of truth. I guess it goes in either direction. Lori Lightfoot, some tough talk, too. We uh, sort of have mastered elevating little people to talk big to be mayor of Chicago. It was daily, It was ROM. Now it's a triple threat, Lori Lightfoot's turn. And uh, she had a message, you know, on Monday morning to the lawbreakers, to the vandals and the thieves and the. And, and, and the uh, pillagers.
5: Our expectation is that this is going to be treated with the level of seriousness that it should be, period. Don't try to bait us, mischaracterize, pit one against the other. We're not playing that. We are in a serious situation here, and we need a serious response. That's what we're saying.
1: Yeah, that's what we're saying, serious. Don't uh, be trying to hold anybody accountable or don't get me to try and hold somebody accountable. That's not what we're doing. That's baiting. Serious people... Putting together serious responses because she had a message to uh, those uh, who took to the streets and took what they wanted.
5: And to those who engaged in this criminal behavior, let's be clear. We are coming for you. We are already at work and finding you and we w- intend to hold you accountable for your actions.
1: Mm, there's some accountability. Are huh? you impressed? Impressed by that rhetoric? You hear it from politicians, regardless of the political stripes, because they know that's where the majority of common sense people are all the time everywhere. But that's not really where they are because they're ideologues and the ideology trumps. Well, certainly the rule of law trumps your public safety concerns. It trumps everything. They're too busy reimagining and remaking to be worried about your pedestrian parochial concerns. So. That was 48 hours ago, what you just heard. A lot of lead up, some of that audio I played before, but it's important because here's what happened yesterday. Less than 48 hours after all of that pounding of shoes on lecterns by Democrat socialist politicians, the first accused participant in Monday's downtown pillaging appeared in bond court. There were 100 arrests made, round numbers. Prosecutors charged Demisic Lomax, 25 years old, with felony aggravated battery of a police officer, criminal damage to property, resisting police, also announced their intention to charge Lomax with looting-related charges. He went home for 500 bucks, $500 bond for aggravate felony aggravated battery of a cop, criminal damage to property, resisting arrest, and forthcoming charges that were looting-related. It would be less blatant if these politicians and this goes for Jenny Durkin in Seattle and Ted Wheeler in Portland and Bill de Blasio in New York. And I'm sure I'm leaving out many others less blatant if they just dropped predatory criminals off on people's front steps and said, take what you want, because then you wouldn't have the charade of a justice system. You wouldn't have the theater of political office holders pretending that they're going to hold anyone to account. Any more than they hold themselves to account for what happens on their watch. And all this talk, come forward. You know, you need to be loyal to your city. Loyalty is a two-way street. How loyal has the city been to law-abiding residents, business owners? This is uh, the city of Chicago, but it's San Francisco and Philadelphia and New York as well. Anywhere where you have a non-prosecution culture. Anywhere where you have politicians, whether mayor's offices or state's attorneys or district attorney's offices or governor's office, reimagining law and order through a Marxist lens, this is Dan Jackson. The
5: more you listen,
0: the more you'll know. This is the Dan Croft Show?
1: Welcome back to the show. Just a final note on uh, all of this uh, urban violence pillaging, the looting uh, before we uh, move to conversations about COVID-19, particularly as it relates to schools in the next, uh, uh, after the break. Understand the depths of the identitarian barbarism. No, no bottom. Uh, An aspect of the violence and looting and ransacking of downtown Chicago. I hadn't mentioned yet this week was that I did mention it was coordinated, coordinated caravans of cars, stolen SUVs, U-Hauls with projectiles for people to throw at police officers and to throw through windows, of course, Uh, high value targets, high-end retail stores, grocery stores, restaurants. Also, uh, Lurie's Children's Hospital in downtown Chicago, Children's Hospital, and Ronald McDonald House, which is right near the hospital. You know, Ronald McDonald House for sick kids. Two-year-old Owen Buell and his family have been staying at Ronald McDonald House near Lurie's Children Children's Hospital while he receives treatment for stage four neuroblastoma. They were supposed to go home uh, to a suburban Chicago. Joliet is where they're from, made famous by the Blues Brothers. You were, you know, Joliet. Uh, And um, they couldn't because the shutdown of downtown Chicago, the looting and the associated police action made it impossible. We were going to have cake and ice cream and do some presents at home with the siblings and his grandma, said Owen's mom, Valerie Mitchell. But They couldn't. Because the depths. Of identitarian barbarism. No, no bottom. Uh, Mitchell, Lisa Mitchell from Ronald McDonald House spoke to the press about this.
6: They were very
2: concerned because there was a lot of activity right in front of the house uh, and people, you know, making choices that could put them uh, at risk and put our families at risk. So the staff was frightened. They're already in a really, really difficult spot and and having this kind of um, stress, additional stress, and worry about being able to get to and from the hospital, even though we're five blocks away because of safety concerns is, It's just doubling the strain.
1: Doubling the strain, right. Like if you have a two-year-old with stage four neuroblastoma. Consideration for one's fellow man. That's on the ballot in November. This is Dan Proff. welcome to another edition of the dan prof show thank you so much for joining us you can follow us danprofshow.com that is the website you also find podcasts there as you do on spotify and itunes twitter at dan prof and at dan prof show devastating news is COVID 19 causing a shortage of dr pepper uh, we got some man in the street reaction to the news are you telling us absolutely everything
6: Not exactly. We're also out
1: of coffee. Dr. Pepper. So the uh, hits just keep on coming from COVID-19. Alyssa Finley has a good piece in the Wall Street Journal reminding us. It's sort of a a summary of what we've talked about and, and others have talked about as well. The research on the impact of lockdowns on children and adults as well in terms of stress levels and heightened stress levels lead to Lead to bad health outcomes, including resistance to colds and viruses, because your T cell immunity is compromised with undue stress. So she goes through them, and she just makes the simple point that we've made here about trade offs. She phrases it perhaps better than I have, which is: public uh, parents and public officials have been asking if it's safe to send children to school this fall. They should also ask if it's safe not to. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined again by Dr. Kevin Pham. He's a medical doctor. He's also a contributor to the Heritage Foundation's Daily Signal, former graduate fellow in health policy at the Heritage Foundation as well. Dr. Pham, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. So, uh, yeah, what about that question, the second part of the question about uh, school reopenings, is it safe not to send children back to school?
4: uh well every family is going to have a different set of circumstances so if that question in isolation i would say uh it's safer to send your kids to school than to keep them locked up in the house but you know we should also remember you know, some families have older um, relatives who live in that in that household. And so their calculation is going to be a little bit different. They're just going to be trying to work because once you send your kids to school, then it's not only your kids going to school, you got to pick up your kids and your kids communicate with other kids and then they communicate with adults and you have to communicate with the teachers adults. So there's a lot of other interactions that happen with this. So if you're trying to protect someone in the household, and that, that changes the things, uh, the calculation just a little bit. So is it safer to keep kids at home? Usually no, like they, they do face so many other things, but it's going to be a less, Safe to send your kids to school if you have someone at risk at, at the house. That's the main. That's the main consideration.
1: Um, you uh, penned a piece for the Daily Signal in conjunction with uh, Amy Anderson. We've had on the show. She's a registered nurse. She has three children who are school age. One in college. She writes. Overall, I feel fairly comfortable with my kids going back to in person school and participating in the normal school activities with reasonable safety measures. And overall. There has been a retreat from that position, mainly by Democrats. I mean, I'm sorry we have to put this through a partisan prism, but we do because that's how it's playing out. Retreat from even the initial support for some sort of hybrid setup for the school day and the the school year. Uh, We one school district in Chicagoland that initially was going to do a hybrid relatively well-known high school, Nutriere High School in the North Shore, is now going first four weeks remote learning only. You're hearing uh, rumblings from other Democrats around the country, including de Blasio in New York, despite Cuomo's "you schools can open if they want to, sort of position a walking back or at least starting to step back from the idea of any in-person education. Just, just so we're clear on this, as people walk back decisions they initially made, there has been no new science on the topic. There is nothing in terms of indication as to children being more or less susceptible, uh, more an increased likelihood of serious illness or death, uh, the case count. Th- there's been nothing that should change the calculus from three weeks ago to today. Has there been?
4: I mean, honestly, the, any new data coming out shows that it's, it's safer to send kids to school. Uh, let me see there was a, a recent study that sh- that showed that was a contact tracing study in, in South Korea that showed that there was almost no uh actually this study in particular showed that there was no transmission from a from a child a school-aged child to an adult or and there was very little transmission from child to child as well so with more data we're, we're seeing that uh you know going to school is probably the safest activity that we can resume and this this really staunch um opposition to reopening the schools is frankly, is anti-science,
1: anti-science, the opposition, the staunch opposition to opening schools is anti-science. I just want to, you know, put that in quotation marks, underline it, circle it, send it out on Twitter, just more uh, grist for the mill. I know, but at least we're having uh, clarity in our conversations here. If those aren't happening elsewhere, particularly in the uh, halls of political power uh, with respect to uh, this news about a potential Russian vaccine, as you've been watching that and, and reading whatever is publicly available on it, uh, what's your assessment in terms of how much uh, how much weight we should give uh, that vaccine? The some who have opined on it have suggested, well, that's interesting news. I would never take it. I'm not going to trust whatever's coming out of Russia. But that's interesting news. Is that your view?
4: Uh, basically, the, the the what I'm really concerned about with the the Russian vaccine is that they basically skipped um, half of the, the, the clinical trial phases that you're supposed to go through. Uh, you know, they, they started with a, they concluded a 76 person study recently, and they're going from that to mass distribution of their vaccine. At least that's what they're saying. I don't know if they're actually going to go through with this, but, you know, just to compare what they've done, which is a 76 person um, study and think that's enough, uh, the Moderna va- vaccine went through a 50 to 60 person trial, um, starting in March. And then since then they did a several hundred person study. And then now they're doing a 30,000 person study to make sure that it's safe and effective. And um, AstraZeneca is going through um, several thousand, several tens of thousands as well. I think they're aiming for 50,000. I might have those two numbers reversed, but either way, tens of thousands of people before they, they market this. Uh, so our vaccines, or at least the vaccines not in Russia, are going through a lot of safety um, trials um, they're not cutting any corners as far as safety goes. Whereas Russia is just is blasting past that, and it's uh, it's it's causing a bit of concern for me. I think
1: um, you know how, how, when you talk to uh, other doctors and nurses, and you and you talk to I don't know if you see patients, but if you if you, when you talk to patients, I mean, isn't so much of this? Look, like, here, here's what we know, uh, and here's essentially the risk uh, perspective on it, and, and then it comes down to common sense. Because uh, if people can't use their common sense, then they see nothing confusing about how some sports are OK outside and other sports are not. Uh, and, and just on and on and on with the arbitrariness of this, the schooling, uh, just so much of the arbitrariness of it, the uh, uh, the mask wearing, this, the randomness of it all. So, I mean, is that just the end of it? Look, if, if you want to live, if you want to wait for a world in which... There is zero risk or you want to set the standard, as we seem to have set one case. The immediate response is to shut down wherever that case occurred, whether it's a football team or a school or a restaurant or a business. If you want to try to live in that world, then you are going to be waiting for the rest of your natural life. So uh, here's what we know. Here's what the risks are. Use common sense. Godspeed. So that's not the perspective that most doctors have. Godspeed
4: is usually not it. But then, you yeah, know, most doctors okay. were are trying to treat this
1: thing. Well, I mean, you just say, no. I'm just trying to, I mean, you get it. I'm just trying to, you know, slap people around, wait, wake up, get out, you know, under live in the real world, what we know, what we don't know, and then the uh, decisions you need to make on imperfect information based on most likely outcome, you know, like you do in every other aspect of your life, and you have done up until COVID-19.
4: Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that's, that's exactly right. I just want to be clear, like most, most, most treating physicians are going to be focused on the, the biomedical aspect of all this, which, you know, if, if all of us stood perfectly still for two weeks, his lives would be gone. But we'd probably also be gone. So, you know, we can't just lock down our entire lives. Even when, even when we were in lockdown, we were not completely locked down. So there is some aspect of human nature that we have to consider in all this. And, yeah, a lot of that comes in common sense. We don't have to lock down everything if we find we don't have to lock down an entire sports league if we find one or two people who have this thing. We could try to quarantine them and move on with the with the rest of the league. There's a lot of ways to do this thing and we have to recognize that that our normal lives are not just luxuries. Our normal lives are a necessity of how, of what makes us human.
1: Yeah. I mean, this oh, what's sustainable? What isn't sustainable? Forget what's sustainable is sustainable. What kind of life do you want to live in? What kind of society do you want to live? Those are some questions that don't seem to be getting mis, m- much consideration. And they're not medical questions, but they're certainly not. Um, for, they're not foreclosed from people in the public health arena weighing in either. You're human beings as well. Uh, you know, it's OK if you act like one. Uh, not that, to say that you're not, but you know what I mean?
4: Right, exactly. Uh, yeah, no, the people who are too laser-focused in on just trying to prevent the spread of this one disease, then they're, going to, they're going to forget that people also need to live, people also need to work, and people also need to be exposed um, to, yeah, just normal life so that they're not exposed to the risk of the stress, of, of loneliness, of isolation, and those, those have real implications, too.
1: Dr. Kevin Pham, a medical doctor, contributor to the Daily Signal, Heritage Foundation outlet, and former graduate fellow in health policy at the Heritage Foundation as well. Dr. Pham, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it.
4: Thanks so much for having me. Turn this thing right
5: now.
0: Hey, Listen to the podcast of the show at danproffshow.com.
1: Welcome back to the show. Writing in uh, spiked online, Professor Frank Ferruti argues about the uh, assault on American history, really assault on Western civilization and its history that the metaphorical vandalization of the past justifies the actual vandalization of statues and national monuments. He writes that um, the uh, powerful and influential cultural warriors responsible for the metaphorical and actual vandalization uh, are um, proving remarkably successful. Those who seek to uphold the legacy of human civilization, less so. Uh, he concludes, defeating this cultural blitzkrieg will require much more than is currently on show. Well, let's get some more development on that. Much more means what exactly? For uh, help on that, we're pleased to be joined by the aforesaid Frank Ferruti, Professor Emeritus of Sociology at the University of Kent in Britain, author of How Fear Works, Culture, the uh, Culture of Fear in the 21st Century, and Why Borders, as well as Why Borders Matter, Why Humanity Must Relearn the Art of Drawing Borders. Professor Frutti, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. A
7: pleasure. Nice to talk to
1: you. So uh, clearly the uh, neo-jacobins are on the march, and uh, you suggest those who uh, uh, understand what they're doing and the destructiveness of it all uh, are not meeting the moment. What more is required than is currently being uh, asserted?
7: Well, I I think that uh, we have to remember that this has been going on for a very long time, but it might not have had the uh, the kind of radical, violent public expression that it's got uh, at the moment, but it's been going on for decades and decades with fairly minimal uh, reaction. And I think what's tended to happen is that uh, this kind of crusade against Western civilization and its past usually leads to a backlash that lasts for a couple of weeks. Uh, And then the people that are uncomfortable with it just tend to avoid dealing with it anymore. And then, but that doesn't stop the movement from going forward. And I think if you look at the last 20, 30 years, you'll find that um, 30 years ago, courses dealing with Western civilization were taken off the curriculum in some universities. You'll find that the history books that children learn by have changed uh, in a way that reflects very badly on America's past and upon the past of, West, of the Western world. You'll find that a few years ago, Columbus is suddenly transformed into this hate figure that, that somehow he was this terrible person rather than the man who discovered America. People react a little bit, but they let it go. But uh, the cumulative consequence of this is that the movement goes forward, The, the their ideals gain greater and greater influence in cultural institutions. It's impossible to watch uh, programs on Netflix without being influenced by these sentiments. Uh, It's impossible to go to a teacher's training college uh, without uh, coming across these kinds of negative representations of the past. And people have just kind of noted it. They kind of laugh about it. They're often very nervous about it. But there's been a kind of moral cowardice uh, by people who should should have known better and should have done more to resist this. And what I'm really arguing is that now, you know, things have come to the point where unless we uh, fight back seriously, not one day here, two hours there, but, you know, consistently, uh, then the uh, anti-civilizational kind of trends, the, these anti-cultural trends, are going to reach, uh, you know, a kind of uh, m- such a momentum that they'll uh, essentially dominate public and cultural life in many parts of the Western world.
1: What is, what is, how, what form does fighting back take? Does this mean that, uh, you know, leading intellects and business people and educators, uh, 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 you know, uh, artists stand up in solidarity and say, you know, you shall not pass this, this will not go on any longer. I'm going to fight uh, for uh, Western values of free thinking and a free society in my space and I'm not going to be back down? I mean, is it, is it that sort of a coalition building exercise or is there a particular cohort that needs to be activated or a particular uh, individual or organization that needs to be delegitimized? What's the, what's the form?
7: Well, the, well there's, there's a number of different strands that I think needs to be followed. Of the first strand is to give voice to people who, are, who, are, who know what's happening and know it's wrong, and but at the moment are either self-censoring or alternatively or you know, haven't got the confidence in themselves to, to voice their opposition to what they're seeing unfolding in front of their eyes. And I think that constituency is really very important because they form the backbone of any resistance in the future. But at the moment, they exist in a very fragmented, atomized world they're, they're not being given any leadership any kind of serious encouragement so that's the first thing the second thing is uh, and and this is something that should not be underestimated is the battle of ideas we, we got to be able to put forward with, with greater confidence our version of, of uh, history you know it's all very well for the new york times to have its 1619 project which kind of uh Pathologizes America's history and past. It gets a few criticism, but we need to kind of produce comparable statements about who we are, where we've come from, what our values are, and we got to you know sort of insist that institutions, businesses in the private sector and the public sector, you know, sort of also uh, sort of take up these these kind of sentiments. And then finally, and most importantly, are the young. I mean, ultimately. This battle will be won by the generations that are now in schools and uh, about to go to colleges and universities. I think they need to be uh, confronted and they need to be exposed to ideas that counter the dominant themes that they learn in the classrooms. I mean, we have to almost uh, help their parents to debrief them to offer a different vision, an alternative vision to what they're learning in schools. We have to think about uh, you know, uh, is there any way we can set up or establish different teacher training colleges where teachers are trained according to different ped- pedagogy? And fundamentally, at the end of the day, we have to ask the question, uh, do we need different kinds of schools? You know, I mean, we must have some schools that are much more uh, optimistic about uh, the United States and much more uh, uh, kind of project greater confidence about where we've come from. And... Who are rigorously and systematically committed to promoting the values that are uh, the underpinnings of Western civilization?
1: How how do you receive uh, those academics of the left, uh, mostly academics, not limited, but mostly academics, that have also called out the so called cancel culture in some way or are presenting alternatives to the cultural dominance on campus in the form of like heterodox academy? that Jonathan Haidt and others started. Is that a repository for progress or is that just sort of slow walking us to the same place? No,
7: I mean, I think there are some positive developments because in many ways you have to remember that old school liberals are just as much horrified by what they're seeing as you and I. I mean, their foundation of of their ideals is called into question.
1: He is Frank Frutti, Professor Emeritus of Sociology at the University of Kent Kent in the U.K., author of the books How Fear Works, Culture, Fear in the 21st Century, and Why Borders Matter, Why Humanity Must Relearn the Art of Drawing Borders. Professor Frutti, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Pleasure.
5: Thank you very much. Take care.
0: Opposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show.
1: Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Continuing uh, our discussion of schools in the era of COVID-19, that we had in a significant measure with Dr. Kevin Pham at the top of the hour. You have pressure coming from a couple of different directions on Democrat governors and big city mayors. Uh, the one direction, you have parents who want their kids back in school, particularly families who are not rich, who need their kids back in school, even if right now those schools are not providing exactly the kind of education parents of those children would like to have happen, per our conversation yesterday about starving the minotaur. Don't look for an opportunity to get your kids back into these totalitarian re-education centers. Look for the opportunity now to get them out and into a private school setting that perhaps is more aligned with your values and more acts in partnership with the parents rather than in opposition to the parents. So there's pressure in one direction from parents. There's pressure in another direction on particularly, again, dumb politicians from the teachers unions. And we've seen the teachers unions have won the day in big cities like Chicago and L.A., They haven't quite won the day in New York, but uh, they haven't quite given up either. And it seems to me what we could see happen as more schools uh, kneel before fear and the power politics of the teachers union is what we saw happen in Montgomery County, Maryland, although there was an intercession by the governor there, Larry Hogan, which is, hey, if public schools can't do or won't do really, but they'll characterize it as can't can't do in person classroom instruction, then nobody can, because we don't want the private school kids getting even further ahead of the public school kids than they already are. That's not fair. That's not equitable. Even though we've done it to ourselves, we want to do it to them, too. That would not exactly be novel in terms of a philosophical position on policy making from the Jacobin left. For more on this, We're pleased to be joined by our friend Jim Bovard, uh, author of 10 books, member of the USA Today Board of Contributors, frequent contributor to The Hill, and a contributing editor for American Conservative who wrote about Montgomery County, Maryland. Jim Bovard, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it.
6: Hey, thanks for having me back on, Dan.
1: So uh, we covered it when Larry Hogan issued the order on that public health director that said, (laughs) you're not going to be fining private schools for doing in-person instruction with their students But, boy, uh, when you uh, give a public health bureaucrat an inch, uh, he certainly tries to take a mile, as happened there.
6: Yeah, it was a very bizarre fight, and I was glad to see the governor push back on this. Governor Hogan is a lot better than the local politicians who have dictatorial power here. What fascinated me was that the health czar here, Travis Gales, said that he was entitled to shut down all private schools if there were more than eight new COVID cases per day, here in this county. This county's got a million people. So eight new cases would be a COVID positive rate of 0.000008%. That's almost nothing. And, you know, it could be eight cases in a nursing home. But still, this is all it takes for the health czar here to claim absolute power to ban private learning. And it's
1: bizarre. And, of course, I know a man of science as the commissioner there is. Certainly there was a scientific basis for the magic number eight.
6: Well, I think that the scientific basis is basically consists of of the guy standing there and waving his fingers in the air, science and data. Mm -hmm. And people around here are so docile. You know, people say, oh, they have data. Okay, I guess we have to submit, let them have absolute power. But it's interesting, um, almost all the press coverage on this controversy, both uh, um, in favor of the uh, local government and opposed to it, Almost nobody looked at the actual uh, data number that he was using to justify his absolute power.
1: Uh, Jim, Jim, you're questioning an expert. That is not your place. Ah, you you ah, are not a public health uh, director. He, is, he has that title. He, is, so, the, therefore, his diktats are beyond reproach.
6: Well, I've spent decades exposing the lies and power grabs of government officials. And, yeah, I didn't go to medical school, but I also have got a BS radar. The shutdown schools is based on eight people out of a million when those eight people probably aren't even going to be in class. But part of what fascinates me with the liberal narrative here is how they've simply washed away the horrendous adverse impact on minority children, on low-income children. Yeah. These school shutdowns have been a complete disaster politicians in this county have forever preached about the uh, sacred duty to close the achievement gap what about that stuff i mean that simply was tossed overboard when they decide to shut down the schools because my impression is that they haven't made any statements about whether the uh, the so-called achievement gap is increasing but in the eastern part of this county there are a lot of low to moderate income folks those are households that might be single parent or they might have parents who need to work and they don't have the tiger mom there beating the kid over the head, you know, do your reading. So it's it's going to be a complete disaster. And they'll probably use that to justify raising property taxes to spend more money on schools.
1: Uh, yeah, I'm going to pick up there with respect to those achievement gaps when we come back. And I wish uh, GM would be scrambled to build more BS detectors for uh, for distribution than ventilators at this juncture. More with uh, Jim Bovard. He is the author of 10 books, member of USA Today Board of Contributors, and a contributor to the American Conservative. We'll be right
5: back.
0: Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and The Dan Proft
5: Show.
1: Welcome back to the program. We're speaking with uh, Jim Bovard. He is a uh, author of 10 books, member of the USA Today Board of Contributors, frequent contributor to TheHill.com and a contributing editor at TheAmericanConservative.com. And we were talking about uh, schooling in the age of COVID. And uh, you were talking about the uh, achievement gap uh, uh, between students of different races. And there's a lot of concern always and lip service paid by Uh, school officials to closing that achievement gap. You know, one of the things that's been interesting about this is I haven't heard from the teachers unions. I haven't heard from any advocates for, you know, the blank check spending uh, for K through 12 education, that remote learning is even comparable to uh, in classroom learning, that there's no real difference, that you're not going to see – a uh, decline in the intellectual, the speed of the intellectual and social growth of students with this in-person learning. They've all but conceded the point uh, that we know based on the uh, academic research on the topic, that it is a worse educational situation for children. Uh, but they can't talk about that because then it'll look like they just care about themselves and not about doing their jobs.
6: Well, yeah. And it's I'm, I'm happy to see there there have been some Good stories in the newspapers on this recently. The Wall Street Journal whacked that the the, the, the Baltimore Sun had a good piece on this. Um, But according to McKinsey and uh, consultants, uh, some of the best, most respected consultants in the the country, the schools are kept uh, solely online until January. Average white student loses six months of learning, Hispanic students nine months, black students ten months. So this is a horrendous increase in the achievement gap, which was already in many areas, certainly in uh, Montgomery County. It was huge. And I don't understand how the teachers can claim that they have a right to get a salary and stay home at the same time you've got all these grocery workers, grocery store workers, who are, okay, you know, life has a risk. There was a great saying by Thoreau, a man sits as many risks as he runs. And uh, but if you're a government employee for the schools, you get your salary and you get to uh, protest and act like you're a martyr simply because you're staying home and getting your salary because the kids are too dangerous to be around. If that's how you feel, then, OK, quit and don't get paid. But that's not what they're looking for.
1: Uh, right. And, and again, uh, this is, seems to me an opportunity for a more expansive discussion about opportunity scholarships, about school choice. Uh, There has been some movement at the federal level in the proposed uh, COVID phase four relief package that uh, Senate Republicans rolled out 10% of the $105 billion that was allocated uh, would have been for, would be if it ever makes its way to law for opportunity scholarships for kids that are low income in schools that are closed. Um, Well, if, if that's a, if it's good now, then why isn't good all the time? And it seems to me this is a real opportunity for uh, not private schools, private school systems, um, school choice advocates across the political spectrum to be making the case to essentially uh, exercise your power and don't just take what the government school system gives you. Um, if, if the opportunity presents itself with the resources you need so that you have the same choice as, richer people, then use, use, take advantage of the opportunity, use those resources, and let's advocate for the distribution of those resources.
6: Yeah, I mean, it'd be a very, it would be one positive aspect of the school shutdowns if far more parents yanked their kids out of public schools. I think back to my own time in public schools, it was the most brain-deadening experience of my life. <laughs> even, uh, it, uh, it was even worse than the summer I spent working for the Virginia Highway Department leaning on a shovel. <laughs> um but uh yeah i mean parents should do what they can to get their kids out but hopefully this also wakes up parents not to trust the schools especially government schools to edu- to educate their kids because the government you know the government doesn't have an incentive to have uh, you know citizens who are wide awake and have those bs radars instead uh, the, the government's incentive is to have people who keep paying and obeying and that's what the schools have produced
1: you know, we spend a lot of time talking about uh, K-12 through 12 education as well. We should, but also what's happening at the collegiate level. That's important, too, uh, and this idea of sending kids back to a college campus so they can sit in their dorm room and take classes online while paying full freight, you know, there's uh, ostensibly a reckoning coming at uh, the post-secondary level, too, and that's long overdue.
6: Uh, absolutely. I mean, colleges have become insanely overpriced. Uh, I, uh, the, and um, I did a story on this a year or two ago that looked at how college students these days do far less work each week than they did even 40, 50 years ago. I mean, work on classes, work in the library. I mean, it's far more of a club med experience now than it was back in the 1970s. Um, so, I mean, um, and and uh, in some cases it ruins the kids for life because they get used to, you know, this, this very lavish cuisine, And they graduate and like, oh, okay. well, I guess I can't afford lobster anymore. Life is unfair.
1: And the only uh, group of uh, individuals on a college campus who do less work than the students are the professors. And uh, so what exactly is the uh, you know, how exactly is the compensation scheme and thus the in part the tuition price justified, Uh, particularly when you start attaching a return on investment to it for various majors? Then it gets really daunting to explain this away. And it seems to me, again, opportunities, uh, crises presenting opportunities. It's an opportunity at the federal level to start putting some colleges on the spot, particularly those well-heeled colleges, and say, you know, we're not going to subsidize this anymore through federal student loan program to get them uh, to do what their state governments won't won't and can't get them to do, which is, uh, you know, right-size the way their uh, university operates if it's going to continue to.
6: Well, it's, it's, the, the federal subsidies and subsidized loans have had a horrendous adverse in, impact on colleges because it's basically free money and the colleges have responded by doing basically whatever they want, hiring vast numbers of bureaucrats, and lowering standards because the, uh, the, the, the colleges are hooked on those subsidies and they're not going to, to to fail the students who shouldn't be there because that would cut down the subsidies so I mean, it's just like a, um, um, it's like a circle. It, 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 uh, it's like dominoes falling, and, and each thing lowers the standards even further.
1: He is James Bovard, author of ten books, member of the USA Today Board of Contributors, contributor to thehill.com, dot contributing editor of theamericanconservative.com. Jim, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks so much. Take care.
0: the Dan prof show
1: welcome back to the show sticking on the topic of K-12 education and following up on a story that we brought to you on the Dan Prof show we talked about on yesterday's program with Bob Woodson from the Woodson Center in fact keeping with our commitment to exhibit institutional knowledge on this program. Following up on a school district in Evanston, Skokie in suburban Chicago. This is the school district that made national news. Fox News picked up the story because with their limited in-person learning in this school district, they were going to prioritize, according to the superintendent of the school, uh, in this order, school, students who are free or reduced lunch, special education, emerging bilingual, black and brown students. Uh, So, uh, again, here, the issue of identifying students by their race for prioritization. And uh, the school board is now responding to some of the criticism they received now that that statement from the superintendent has gotten out locally as well as nationally with Fox News and with our show, too, I may add. And uh, what do you think they're doing? The identitarian left. You think they're backing off an iota? You think they're trying to explain their view? No. They're suggesting anybody who disagrees is racist, is a purveyor of white supremacy. And, uh, for example, the board president, that school board president, we know there are many in our community committed to equity and ensuring that our most marginalized students are prioritized because of the legacy of racism and and white supremacy has made their educational experiences unjust. Yes, I know you're the purveyor of white supremacy and the marginalization of people without means that are disproportionately minority. Because you, government school apparatchiks, are oppos uh, opponents of school choice, as we've often discussed on this show. We need to move beyond discussing these realities and take decisive action to rise to the moment and demonstrate our commitment to these values. The entire response from the school board members in defense of their superintendent and defense of their own positions, because they're all fellow travelers down the road to serfdom is to restate their commitment to their values in some vague abstraction and dismiss any criticism, all criticism as just more of the remnants of racism and white supremacy, that their values and the decisive actions they're taking are meant to overcome. This is a, Uh, our conversation with James Lindsay last week from New Discourses. They will not engage in discussion. You are beneath discussion. Your criticism is by definition illegitimate. And to indulge it is to delegitimize their position and to legitimize yours, to give you standing that you are not owed. Even if you have a kid at the school, I'm sure that's their position. And so they talked about letters they've received, but they're not going to you know, essentially pollute the public arena by reading any excerpts from the letters or by allowing uh, making public the letters for inspection. They're just going to characterize them for us. Right. Those are their values.
0: Far from the fake news. He's always got the real story. This is the Dan Prof show. You are fake news.
1: Twitter at Dan Prof and at Dan Proft show. Hernando De Soto, who is not the explorer, who is an uh, economist. Excellent piece in The Wall Street Journal about uh, China and America and capitalism. The piece, how to be China and help the world's poor. It's interesting how he sort of describes what's happening with those in the informal economy who work outside the global financial system, which is about two billion people and who uh, saw a 60% drop in income in the first month of the COVID-19 pandemic. This according to the U.N. He writes, does DeSoto, unlike China, the U.S. and other developed nations, these countries do not have capital and credit-creating institutions that continually generate funds. To finance a virus-induced recession, developing countries can rely only on their monetary savings and capacity for debt, which will be quickly uh, depleted. And the contest between Chinese and American models of capitalism Developing countries will side with whoever offers them not more debt, but the opportunity to create capital based on property, which is you know, the only way to legitimately develop capital. And uh, we're talking about two billion people and one hundred fifty trillion dollars of proven reserves in terms of title to the property that they hold. He uh, goes on to say those in the informal economy are willing to embrace capitalism, whether it will be China's or America's model. Will depend on which country understands that while no one was looking, the poor inherited the surface of the earth and they will favor whoever helps them use their legacy to create capital rather than destroy it. Really interesting piece from the perspective of those two billion people outside the global financial system who have title to property, but problems because of the countries they live in with access to capital. For more on uh, this topic, as well as TikTok and election interference, all things Chinese communist related. We're pleased to be joined again by Gordon Chang. He's columnist at the Daily Beast. He's the author of the books Losing South Korea and The Coming Collapse of China. His uh, Twitter handle, Gordon G. Chang, is where you find him and follow him. Gordon Chang, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it.
8: Oh Well, thank you so much, Dan.
1: What about uh, what Hernando de Soto argues about uh, this competition? You think about it in the, the old Soviet sense, the U.S. versus the Soviet Union in terms of our political systems with competing around the world to develop uh, allies, or in the Soviet case, satellites. What Hernando de Soto is saying, essentially in this uh, race between China and the U.S., and I know who you think is going to win that race, but to the extent that there is one and there's the opportunity to spread free market capitalism across the globe, this is the time for America to intercede, to assist developing nations with the credit crunch that their residents are dealing with.
8: Well, certainly that's a strong argument. Basically, people will follow whoever offers them prosperity. And sometimes China can offer prosperity in the short term. And that has been really the example we have seen, for instance, in many parts of Africa where countries have followed China's lead. And part of that is because China has bought off the elites in um, Africa and sometimes they've done that in illicit and underhanded ways. So, yes, I can understand the Soto's argument. But nonetheless, there are some factors that would undercut that.
1: And, and so, uh, OK, and so uh, uh, and the factors being the, the sort of the kleptocracy way that China behaves. So you, but you need to work around these political leaders and these developing nations. And that's not an easy thing to do. It's not easy to work around the uh, governing administrations, is your point.
8: Yes. In general, though, I think that when you think about free market capitalism and its ability to generate wealth, it will always win in the long term, but it has to have the ability to actually prove itself. And what Beijing is all about is developing the conditions where there isn't a fair competition. So it's also political. And that's why we have to be concerned about what China's relations with Africa and other places. Ultimately, one other point, and this is an optimistic one, and that is that China's relations with many of the African states are now at a critical turning point because China has put these countries into debt. They can't pay back. China's grand infrastructure projects in many parts of the world is just uneconomic. And so ultimately, Beijing, unless it has the ability to continue to feed these projects, will have to abandon them. And when it abandons them, countries will then turn toward free market capitalism of the type that DeSoto was talking about.
1: How big is the event of Jimmy Lai's arrest, uh, the publishing magnate in China? How big an ev- event is that?
8: I think it's absolutely critical to Hong Kong. Jimmy Lai, his two sons, and four executives, Apple Daily, the main pro-democracy paper, were arrested under the national security law, which was just enacted by Beijing. And the arrest of all of those Apple Daily people really was intended to decapitate the paper, to snuff out a voice. And if Beijing were successful, we'd have to be really concerned. However, the paper is absolutely determined to survive. And the people of Hong Kong wanted to see it survive because they actually lined up on the streets to buy newspapers, to buy Apple Daily copies after Lai, his sons, and the execs were um, arrested. So this is really good news. It shows that Hong Kong is resisting China. And although China can put a lot of people in jail, it really has bought a long-term struggle in Hong Kong.
1: Thinking about uh, TikTok, uh, you of course, have seen President Trump's reaction to Microsoft's pursuit of acquiring TikTok in America. You know, what is your sense of how dangerous it is to keep TikTok in Chinese communist hands versus sort of shared hands, perhaps with Microsoft, when it seems fairly clear from all of the intelligence that's been publicly reported that TikTok is used to gather information on American children that will ultimately be used against them at some point?
8: Yes, well, it's not only surveilling, and it's not only the U.S. intelligence community, because Apple, for instance, caught TikTok twice this year, surveilling users, once in April and again in late June. But also TikTok can be used to manipulate American public opinion in ways that Beijing desires. And there's some evidence that occurred also this year, although that is yet to be proved. The point is, though, there are a lot of allegations, and I think many of them are indeed true. Some have been confirmed to be true. But there's a more fundamental point, and that is U.S. apps are not allowed in China. So why should we allow China's apps in the U.S.? This is an issue of basic fairness. So even if TikTok were a model citizen and it's not, it should be banned in the United States.
1: Just giving us sort of a status check on President Xi and the Chinese communist regime, get a wide array of opinions about whether his increasing repression is coming from a position of strength making his regime stronger, even as it becomes more repressive, or it's an indication of weakness and that uh, Xi's days may be numbered. I mean, it it can go both ways. Certainly, we've seen a repressive Putin expand his power through popularity, in part, uh, over the years of his uh, tyranny over the Russian people. Uh, Where are we with Xi in China?
8: That's a great question, because China watchers argue both sides of this. Ultimately, though, the Communist Party, because it is so obsessive in controlling uh, the Chinese people, and it's moving back to a form of totalitarianism in this regard, that is a sign of weakness, that they can't allow free elections, because they know that they might lose. And indeed, I think they're worried about public discontent over a number of things, especially a crumbling economy. However, on the other side, You know, they do have a lot of state power. There's no doubt about it. Um, you know, they've got total surveillance or or near total surveillance. They've got the social credit system, which will go nationwide soon, if not this year, as planned. These are tools which are Orwellian, and they do suggest that China is no longer authoritarian, but has moved to a form of uh, light totalitarianism. And, and obviously, you know, countries don't do that unless they, they're worried.
1: So just with, with respect to China, are there pockets of revolt Outside of Hong Kong, uh, is, is there any revolt inside the country, uh, despite the propaganda campaigns to the one child policy that went to the two child policy? How barbaric that that is. Is there any revolts against the persecution of Uyghurs and Christians in mainland China? Is any of that happening?
8: Yeah, there isn't revolt. Um, there is resistance. And two years ago, China was wracked by protests on all sorts of issues, when you're talk, whether you're talking about Army veterans or people who lost money in the stock market or uh, mothers who were concerned about uh, impure vaccines. There was just a wave of unrest, and we haven't seen that in the last two years. And part of it is because coronavirus. Um, that has locked down a good portion of China, uh, almost all of it. Um, but the coronavirus epidemic has created a lot of resentment Um, But it's deep resentment because China's Communist Party exerts such control, um, imposes uh, such it because so coercive. um, There has really been very little form of uh, dissent, Um, but we know it it exists because of what it's been doing. Um, It would not be on this bender of uh, controlling the Chinese people if uh, there weren't this deep seated uh, anger and angst.
1: He is Gordon Chang, a Chinese policy expert, communist at the Daily Beast, author of the books Losing South Korea and the Coming Collapse of China. I haven't read Losing South Korea, but the Coming Collapse of China is very good. You can follow him at Twitter, Gordon G. Chang is how you follow him. Gordon Chang, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it.
8: Oh, well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Take care.
0: This is the Dan Proft Show.
1: Cause they got the beat, the can. You know, we had uh, conversations earlier in the show with uh, former professor, well, Professor Emeritus Frank Ferruti talking about the culture of fear, including on a college campus, but not limited there. We talked to VDH, the great VDH, at the beginning of the program, and he mentioned, he wrote, uh, I mentioned the column that he wrote, he, we didn't get to this particular aspect of it, but the thin veneer of American civilization. And in the uh, concluding paragraph of his piece, VDH wrote, the 60s generation is going out as it came in, gross, loud and cowardly, destroying the very institutions for others that it so selfishly consumed for its own benefit. If we wish to know why America's veneer of civilization was so thin and this year so easily scraped away, revealing barbarism beneath, look to a generation's architects in the university, the media, sports, corporations and politics who long ago seeded 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 their cultural IEDs. And now giddy they are and how and now uh, and how giddy they are at last going off, though terrified that the ensuing blasts are reverberating ever closer to home. Yeah, there's some some who are worried about shrapnel. But I think his general statement about the 60s the baby boomers um, is uh, on the mark. So that's the bad news. But the good news, getting back to campus, thus the name of the segment. Is that uh, there are still common sense young people on college campuses who are taking this all in, synthesizing it and coming to very different conclusions than the 60s holdovers, as well as the 60s impersonators or version 2.0 of the baby boomers, uh, as it may be. So in future view, this Wall Street Journal column I go to each weekly that profiles some. Responses from some college students around the country to a particular question or topic. Uh, the topic this week, Black Lives Matter. What does Black Lives Matter mean? Getting some re- responses. And uh, again, uh, even where there is disagreement uh, in this column or there's diversity within the responses, uh, they're usually quite thoughtful. And that in and itself is encouraging, as we talked about with Professor Farudi, starting from the uh, the, the what core Western norms of free thinking and free speaking and substantive discourse. So uh, what does black lives matter mean? Nakheel Karkar of uh university of Michigan, he's a business major. He uh, writes, put down Instagram, pick up real work. Does posting a black screen on Instagram or spending an hour parading a black lives matter sign, help improve the lives of black Americans. BLM seeks to expose longstanding racial inequality in the U S and spark efforts to address it. But the movement has descended into partisan finger pointing that labels everyone who doesn't publicly express complete support as part of the problem. Little is achieved. Uh, Undeniably, BLM has pervaded all facets of America. Baseball players and coaches didn't all kneel on opening day, but the few who stood were called out and had to explain their motives. In only a few years, the status quo shifted from standing to kneeling. It's really a good point, succinctly put, uh, and it's a reminder how quickly things can change. What was the exception becomes the rule. And this again, back to our conversation with Professor Farudi about the need to stand and fight. The timidity is provocative. Going back to uh, young Mr. Karkar at the University of Michigan, these cultural displays, be they kneeling or posting on social media, aren't what the country needs. Americans, including me, need to take actionable steps. For a year, my older sister, Anika, spent Every Sunday with a young black girl from inner city, Milwaukee through the big brothers, big sisters program. This support goes beyond words and will hopefully have long-term benefits for the young girl. There's tangible work that needs to be done. Actually helping people is what supporting BLM means to me. And now I I've, you know, basically at the, this point now argued the idea of you, you have to make a distinction between black lives matter, the organization versus black lives matter. The slogan is a, not a material distinction. They're used interchangeably. The intention is they connote the same things. Uh, it, the uh, slogan is a straw man. Why traffic in straw man, straw men? Uh, 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 of course, Who, who's arguing against that? Who's arguing against that? Any human life doesn't matter, regardless of race and including specifically black Americans or black people the world over, for that matter. No one. So uh, it's silliness. It's. uh Navel gazing. It's self reverence. It's nonsense is what it is. But what uh, Nikhil uh, Karkar is saying about uh, like being a volunteer in Big Brothers, Big Sisters, that's not nonsense. That's good stuff. Uh, let's do another one. Uh, Fallacious slogans. This is Somebody he's a computer science and math major, but uh, he's clearly taken a marketing course. Uh, Raphael Airbecks Marut is a Virginia Tech comp science and math major. As I said, he writes, "Black Lives Matter relies on a classic but Martin, Martin Bailey technique: an uncontroversial position is conflated with a wildly controversial one, the former shielding the latter from criticism." I agree that Black Lives do indeed matter. Right, this sort of required recitation, but I don't agree with the calls to defund or abolish the police. And I don't accept the 1619 Project Assessment of U.S. History. as fundamentally racist and irreparable. Yet, when anyone voices concern with these radical ideas, remember the very convenient reply. But you don't think that black lives matter? I agree with the statement, but the movement is a Trojan horse for the adjoined fringe ideas. Bingo. I couldn't have said it better myself. Uh, one more. What those three words conceal. It does. Uh, this is a. Uh, give credit where credit is due here. Tim Bayer is a Southern Baptist theologic, is at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary where he's, uh, you know, Christian ministry is his calling. He writes what those three worlds conceal. It doesn't matter what the Black Lives Matter movement means to me. What it publicly stands for is alarming enough. In describing its beliefs on its website, the National Group uses language and phrases adopted from critical race theory and intersectionality, which divides people into the oppressors, and the oppressed based on ethnicity, sex, gender identity, sexual orientations, other identity groupings. Right. Here's uh, leadership by example, just in that first paragraph. He actually went to the website and read what Black Lives Matter says it believes, what their platform is, what the organization's mission is. That's more than most who have profile on cable news desks and op ed pages have done. Uh, He goes on, does Mr. Bear, once a person is labeled either as oppressed or oppressor, it becomes impossible to shed the designation. If your group is deemed to have more privilege than the others, your only recourse is to confess your inherent bias and guilt and show your support for those less privileged by shutting up and listening. Any criticism directed toward Americans with less privilege, BLM, or left-wing policy ideas can qualify you for cancelization and ostracism. Black Lives Matter, of course, here we go. Still the need to recite the feeling, the need to recite any decent human being should agree with those three words. And they do. I would add the movement, however, needs to be scrutinized for its radical positions. People should think twice before throwing their unqualified support behind it. Yeah, it's pretty measured. Uh, It's not particularly controversial, but it is. It is. Which is a sad commentary. Uh, but uh, these young people on the page of The Wall Street Journal providing great commentary and some green shoots on college campuses, some optimism there, some hope. We may have um, we may find we, we may yet may yet find the reinforcements on the college campuses of all places. This is Dan Brown.
0: The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network.
1: Welcome back to the Damn Prof Show. This story of uh, Westside convenience store owner Waleed Mohammed is uh, particularly poignant. I mean, there's always stories like this after lawlessness is allowed to afflict a city for an extended period of time, which has happened in Chicago. Waleed Mohammed stepped inside his Westside convenience store for the first time yesterday since he witnessed in real time looters breaking in during Monday morning's attack. This is the second time, Mohammed said. I've been open for just 40 days, so who will be responsible for this? Well, who was responsible last time? He spent $300,000 to reopen his store following May's looting spree. He said the damage is worse this time. Once the door was pried open, security cameras showed a flood of looters coming in, ransacking the place, stolen merchandise, ATM ripped out. I deserve the same service as any other citizen in the city. If the police can go somewhere else for manpower, how come we can't get manpower? Asked Tamika Foster Aiken, who owns the building in which the convenience store is housed. All sides of the town need to be outfitted with proper resources from police. I made six calls myself. The stoners, they made calls. My maintenance guys made calls and nobody came, at least until it was too late. And she makes the point, a good one, that, uh, you know, the convenience store, like all businesses, this is lost on the left, are service enterprises. They serve the community. Otherwise, they don't stay in business. And uh, so this is an issue that continues to climb the charts in terms of impacting voter choices come November. So it's relevant to find out where a former DA and a former attorney general stands on matters like policing. You would think that would be obvious, but it isn't. I mean, that's obvious if you understand what the Democrat Socialist Party has become. This was uh, Kamala Harris not so long ago with Meghan McCain on The View being queried about uh, her view on uh, defunding the police when that uh first was gaining traction
2: and my understanding again this is something that has just come into my understanding recently is that you you would not have police officers like this minneapolis city councilwoman said that i would be a place of privilege if someone broke into my home and i wanted to call the police so again we need to reimagine how we are achieving public safety in america and to have cities where one third of their entire budget is going to policing, but yet there is a dire need in those same cities for mental health resources, for, edu- for resources going into public schools, resources going into job training and and, and job creation. Come on. We have to be honest about this, that there is actually not a consensus around this, because if there were, we would actually see smarter distribution of resources in in our in our country.
1: Oh, if only I was a panelist on The View. Uh, My follow up would be. okay. so how is it going in those cities who are underway with reimagining the police in Minneapolis, in Seattle, in Portland, in Chicago, in New York? Have you noted senator harris how the homicide rate nationally is up 24 percent year over year and that's being driven largely by major urban areas that are lorded over by people that are reimagining the police for more on this we're pleased to be joined again by our friend noah rothman he is a associate editor for commentary magazine msnbc and nbc news contributor and author of the book unjust social justice and the unmaking of america well isn't that timely Uh, and I know the book's Mm -hmm. been out for a little while, but The Unmaking of America part in particular. Noah, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. So uh, The Unmaking of America, it seems to me on on just the law and order front, sort of, you know, let's start uh, at the beginning, and the beginning is physical safety of constituents. Uh, That is really an issue that's driving the debate right now for November. Even if you're in a suburban enclave, it's likely you're around a big city and you can't watch what's going on in New York and Chicago and these other major cities and say, oh, well, that doesn't affect me. I'm indifferent to that. It doesn't inform my vote. It absolutely does inform people's votes.
9: Yeah. And the longer this long, hot summer goes on, the more these issues of public safety and individual security are going to supplant some much more, you know, cosmic issues about the pandemic and the economic uh, crisis associated with it. And you saw sort of last night, tacitly. Kamala Harris's picks by Joe Biden sort of represent a tacit acknowledgement from members of the progressive leaning commentary class and even democratic politicians that, oh uh, yeah, there is kind of actually a lot of violence going on in the, in the streets. And, and Kamala Harris's history as a, uh, a prosecutor and a relatively tough one represents a, uh, a benefit to the Biden campaign, because she's going to represent a tough on crime posture that American, middle America, suburban America really wants. Well, I didn't think that this was an issue, right? Because Defunding the police means whatever you want it to mean. And the fact that we're seeing some small, isolated episodes of violence is not representative of the broader American experience. That was the narrative 12 hours ago. <laughs> and it's since, it's since been
1: abandoned. Let us talk about uh, Kamala Harris's record as a prosecutor. We'll do so with Noel Rothman when we return. <laughs>
0: No, this is this is the Dan Proft Show.
1: We're back with Nora Rothman from Commentary Magazine. Before the break, you mentioned Kamala Harris's record as a prosecutor, as a potential attribute for a general election audience. But if Biden and Kamala don't want her to run on that or collectively, they don't want to run on that. It's not going to be a part of what informs people's vote come November third.
9: Yeah, I think they. I think she won't. Um, she was appealing to a much narrower electorate, a much more uh, progressive and. and you know, for lack of a better word, radicalized electorate around these ideas. Again, the notion that that was so slippery. What she did to to make McCain there. What does this mean to you? Right. As though it doesn't it doesn't have a literal definition and is being exercised, as you said, in a variety of cities, in like Minneapolis and New York City. In New York City, defund the police means disband the plainclothes detective unit. That's what it means. Right. Um, so we don't have an actual def- working definition that's being applied in the real world here, um, and she should be held to to account for it. But I'd be very surprised. If we saw the, the progressive reformer on that debate stage with Mike Pence, as opposed to the tough on kind prosecutor, that was always going to be a benefit for her in the general election. It was just a liability during a Democratic primary.
1: And so uh, how do you assess that selection from the available choices?
9: I I mean, it's, it's early to say uh, I, I tend to agree that it was probably a safe choice. And if she if Kamala Harris, the prosecutor, shows up, then. It's not going to be a bad choice for him uh, that's you know that's the sort of thing that rankles again far left progressives but most of America doesn't really despise law enforcement like the primary electorate does however she had demonstrated a real uh, maladroitness on that debate stage uh, on more than a couple of occasions she was bested by people with far less stature and far less capacity to to Demonstrate that you know they have command of the of, the, of, the, of, a, of, a, of a constituency within the Democratic electorate. I'm thinking of uh, Tulsi Gabbard in particular. And during the Kavanaugh hearing, she really didn't perform especially well. There was one episode in which she just sort of implied that Brett Kavanaugh had taken this meeting at a a law firm, uh, Kazowitz Benson Torres, which has relationships with Donald Trump and suggested very uh, clearly, though not explicitly, that there was some sort of a conspiracy afoot there. And a lot of people followed up, the press followed up, they they pushed on the issue, they they worked it, they tried to find what she was talking about and there was nothing there. There was absolutely nothing there. And it just made her look silly to make this kind of um, a broad implicit indictment of conduct that she had no evidence to support And, of course, her attack on Joe Biden, the busing thing, which was a very deft attack and and got her very far in the polls for a while. But she spent the next two weeks walking it back because Mm -hmm. she couldn't actually make the accusation she was she was making. She wasn't calling him a racist. She wasn't saying she supports busing. She spent the next two weeks defending herself and not prosecuting the attack. Just like that's what you see again. Then it's going to be a bad pick.
1: And uh, what about uh, Kamala Harris's flip flopping on the accusation she made? against Biden during her primary candidacy where she said she believed uh, Biden's accusers when it came to inappropriate touching, stiffing of hair, you know, all the creep show Joe stuff. Uh, Now she apparently doesn't have any problem with what she alleged he did back uh, just several months ago.
9: Uh, And that's and that's just a And That's a real liability there, a real liability, because what you're saying there is, yeah, we make casual accusations of rape all the time. (laughs) <laughs> what are you going to do? I mean, it's not like it's a real, real, thing. It's just something we say, right? Yeah. It doesn't really matter. And if that takes hold, that kind of cynicism really could have a dangerous effect on, on the Democratic position because it demonstrates that it's it's not real, that we don't really mean it. It's just a political maneuver.
1: Well, that's that's the uh, tag, right? That's the tag that the Trump campaign came out of the gate with that. She's a phony. And there's all kinds of examples, as we're describing, to support that accusation. And if she's a phony, then Biden's a phony, too. I mean, I I know you're not going to spend the campaign running against Kamala Harris, but I mean, there is this, you know, she adds this to Biden. Well, she also undermines this idea that he's Scranton Joe, regular dude, transparent, regular guy who's going to lay it to you straight Uh, that she, she, she undermines that market position.
9: Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I mean, there's going to be so much image making around her over the next couple of months. You know, you already saw this, like the 20 foot New York Times front page, all Kamala. Um, <laughs> they're, they're, they're finally, the, le- the left is finally energized about this candidate now, and that's what they needed. And that's what they're going to get for at least a couple of news cycles. But, um, yeah, it remains to be seen whether she can perform.
1: No, I know. I know. I know Corn Pop was excited. But I, I wanted to get your take as uh, the intellectual that you are on this piece in the American Conservative by Julius Crane from. Uh, American affairs. Uh, Conservatives are a bunch of losers. Uh, He's a conservative, um, or at least he characterizes himself as such. And so does that outlet. Uh, I'm not the first person to point out that conservative political uh, coalitions are mostly just collections of losers. But the point nevertheless bears repeating. Today's conservatism is merely the name used to categorize the rejects of the post-Cold War order. A few oddball financiers who can't play nicely with others, (laughs) extractive industries and other declining sectors that the small businesses mostly relying on low wage, low skill labor and a group often referred to as social conservatives who've almost been totally marginalized from mainstream culture. He goes on to say um, what be, what must be overcome uh, by conservative is the false pretension of defending or restoring established authority, which is inherent to any notion of conservatism. Conservatives honestly confront the fact that every benevolent order they have claimed to be conserving for at least a quarter century whether it is the perfect pre-New Deal free market or their imagination of the original Constitution or of a Judeo-Christian nation, it's all long gone. Is that a a fair assessment of um, uh, conservatism in 2020 America since we spent so much time characterizing Democrat socialists in 2020 America?
9: No, it's not. And if I had started an intellectual journal that bombed, I'd be better too. Um, The notion here that (laughs) he's peddling is one that has been litigated uh, over the course of the 2016 election. It was a campaign that was on, it was the demonstration of why Donald Trump is is a necessary risk in 2016. His supporters made the case that conservatism has failed. Conservatism hadn't conserved anything, that the nation was rapidly progressing in this liberal direction. And there were no successes, cultural, political, or otherwise, that conservatives could point to. It is absolute nonsense. I've written about this several times. Um, You can go Google what conservatism has conserved. um, it's an argument that's been litigated uh, extensively, and if you steep yourself in that, if you if you really genuinely believe that there's that this nation is progressing along this left liberal track, and nothing nothing has arrested the progress. In fact, the, 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 the legal structures, he even talked about the Constitution, the legal structures that we have in this country do not represent bulwarks against the kind of revolutionary change that the left seeks. I really don't think we're existing on the same planes of reality and can have a conversation that's rational, because it's not a rational sentiment. That's an emotional sentiment. And we can't a- argue with emotion. I can't reason you out of your emotion.
1: He is Noah Rothman, Associate Editor for Commentary Magazine, MSNBC and NBC News contributor and author of Unjust, Social Justice, and the Unmaking of America. Noah, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. If you leave, I won't cry. I won't waste one single day. But if you leave,
0: don't look the more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show.
1: Welcome back to the show, and we end today's installment uh, on a bit of positivity, almost cheeriness, if you will. Want to feel better? Be kind. This is a piece from uh, Elizabeth Bernstein and uh, Wall Street Journal. It's a good thing to make another person feel good, but being kind can help you too physiologically. Research links kindness to a wealth of physical and emotional benefits, probably more obvious. Studies show when people are kind, they have lower levels of stress hormones and their fight or flight response calms down. They're less depressed, less lonely and happier. They have better cardiovascular health and live longer, may even be physically stronger. They're more popular. And a soon to be published study found that they may even be considered better looking. By doing good, you start looking better. How about that? Where did the benefits end? To co- excellent coping skill for the COVID-19 era, particularly on the stress piece of it, the anxiety, the worrying. And, of course, we, we know this is true. Uh, you know, you reduce, you compromise your T cells, your immune system, and it makes you more susceptible to illness, including viruses. She uh, writes in her piece, in the time of isolation, kindness fosters connection to others, helps you provide purpose and meaning to your life, allowing uh, us to put our values into practice. Diminishing negative thoughts, Emiliana Simon-Thomas, science director of the Greater Good Science Center at the University of California, Berkeley. Our attention isn't something that is infinitely expansive. What we are feeling at any given moment is related to what we're doing. So if we're behaving kindly, that experience will occupy our emotion and translate to our physical well-being. There's two kinds, two kinds of uh, kindness altruism, reciprocal and pure Pretty self-explanatory. You know, give me the pure unadulterated stuff, right? No expectation of reward versus reciprocal. You have a a give-to-get aspect to it. The key to our success is not the survival of the fittest, says Jamil Zaki, a neuroscientist and associate psych professor at Stanford. It's survival of the friendliest. How about that? Survival of the friendliness to replace survival of the fittest. Survival of the friendliness driving one to be the fittest emotionally as well as physically. Hmm. Of course, some people are kinder than others, people born with the personality trait of empathy, yet nature accounts for just half the propensity to be kind, says this uh, Stanford neuroscientist and psych professor. We learn the other half of our, or develop the other half of our propensity for kindness through nurture. Kindness is a skill we can strengthen, much as we would build a muscle, he says. Another psych professor, this this uh, one at the University of Michigan, Stephanie Preston, kindness can even change your brain. She... um Contends that when we're kind, a part of the reward system called the nucleus accumbens activates. Our brain responds the same way it would if we ate a piece of chocolate cake. In addition, when okay, when well, addition, when we see the response of the recipient of our kindness, when the person thanks us or smiles back, our brain releases oxytocin, the feel-good bonding hormone that's released during carnal relations the oxytocin boost makes the pleasure of the experience that much more lasting perhaps more lasting than the other i don't know if it feel if it feels so good that the brain craves more it's an upward signal your brain learns it's rewarding so it motivates you to do it again dr preston says survival of the kindest out there the friendliness not the fittest all right i'll try it at least for a day i'll report back tomorrow thanks for joining us please do so again tomorrow
0: From the fake news. He's always got the real story. This is the Dan Prof. Show. You are fake news.